0: Listening to The Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org, I'm Maria Armudian. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, now in force, was meant to lead to the total elimination of nuclear weapons. Might the removal of the nuclear threat to the planet be in our future? Doug Becker explores. Welcome back to Scholar Circle. I'm Doug Becker. On January the 22nd, 2021, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or the TPNW, entered into force. Opened for signature in 2017, the 50 ratifications required for the treaty to enter force were secured in roughly three years. This treaty's stated purpose of a nuclear weapons-free world has faced opposition from the precise states it is meant to address, those countries with nuclear weapons stockpiles. In this segment, we will review the treaty and discuss the next steps in nuclear disarmament. Our guest is Ira Helping, He is the co-chair of the Physicians for Social Responsibilities, Nuclear Weapons Abolition Committee, and also serves as the co-president of PSR's Global Federation, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He's also a member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN's International Steering Committee. In honor of its work on this treaty, ICANN was recognized with the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. Dr. Helfand is also the co-author of PSR's reports, Nuclear Famine, Two Billion at Risk, which outlines the global health consequences of regional nuclear war. Dr. Helfand, thank you very much for
1: joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Doug. It's a real pleasure.
0: Thank you. And so let's start with what exactly is the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons and how does it differ from some previous existing treaties dealing with issues of nuclear proliferation and nuclear armaments?
1: Well, the TPNW is meant to close a gap Uh, in international law, Uh, up until the entry into force of this treaty, uh, there were treaties in place that prohibited the possession of chemical weapons, prohibited the possession of biological weapons that banned cluster munitions and banned landmines. But the worst weapons of all, nuclear weapons, were not uh, banned in international law. And that's what the TPNW does. It creates an international norm saying that these weapons are basically uh, so inhumane, so intolerable, that not just the use of the weapons, but the simple possession of the weapons is now defined as being illegal under international law.
0: And what's striking is that previously, nuclear weapons were allowed to be created, to be developed and, and to be deployed, or you know, at least maintained by a certain number of, of nuclear weapons states under the so-called Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. How important is it that we're sort of, the way you describe this is addressing this, this gap in international law, but to close that, that gap to ensure that the countries that have nuclear weapons no longer are legally allowed to possess them?
1: Well, you know, the non-proliferation treaty made an explicit exemption and said it was okay for five countries, the United States, Soviet Union, then Russia, uh, Britain, France, and China to have nuclear arsenals. Uh, it essentially blessed their arsenals. It did tell them that they were supposed to negotiate in good faith to ultimately eliminate them, but they haven't done that in, in, in the 50 years since the treaty went into effect. And they maintain that they're still within their legal right to have these weapons under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. What happened, I think, is that after literally decades of being told that they needed to honor their obligations and not develop nuclear weapons the non-nuclear armed states finally said, enough. We have held up our part of the bargain. It's time for you to honor your part of the bargain. And you are supposed to be getting rid of your arsenals and you're not. So this treaty was designed very much as a way for the non-nuclear armed states to come together to stigmatize the possession of nuclear weapons and to put pressure on the nuclear armed states to honor their obligations and to get rid of these weapons. None of the nuclear armed states were involved in the negotiation of the treaty. They actively opposed it uh, and have shown varying degrees of hostility towards it, including the United States under both President Trump and before him, President Obama. The Obama administration worked very hard to block unsuccessfully uh, the adoption of this treaty. But that is the challenge that we face. How do we get how do we use this treaty to move the position of the nuclear armed states? And you know, there is some hope, I believe, that here in the United States, the Biden administration will be much more um, open to the idea that it should welcome this treaty as an important step towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. Uh, and that perhaps we can get this administration to take the steps that the US needs to take in order to move rapidly towards the realization of that goal, the elimination of nuclear weapons.
0: Now, when thinking of nuclear weapons, one of the most striking aspects of this is if they're grouped together as President George H. W. Bush had grouped together what he called weapons of mass destruction, which would include biological weapons and chemical weapons. That biological weapons have a convention that that uh, bans their construction, stockpiling, as well as use as well as you know, chemical weapons you know, in, in the same way, but nuclear weapons were treated differently. You have some thoughts about why it is that we've treated nuclear weapons differently than chemical and uh, chemical and biological weapons, in particular considering the fact that of the three, nuclear weapons are far more destructive.
1: Well, I think the problem is that, that, that the great powers really wanted to have nuclear weapons. Uh, they were willing to give up chemical weapons, which they didn't think were that important to their military planning, and they were willing to give up biological weapons, but, they all base their military planning on the possession of potential use of nuclear weapons. Uh, and it, that reality really needs to, we, we need to, to grasp that. I mean, these weapons do not exist just you know, to deter somebody else from using them. All of the nuclear armed states have explicit plans for how they would use nuclear weapons under various circumstances. And as long as these weapons exist and as long as these doctrines exist, there is the real possibility they're going to be used. So I think that's also the reason why there's such strong resistance from the nuclear-armed states. We are telling them they need to completely change their thinking about national security. But of course, they should change their thinking because their thinking is profoundly wrong. Uh, They have made a gamble uh, that possessing nuclear weapons will make them safe. All the evidence suggests that nuclear weapons are in fact the greatest threat to the national security of the United States and every other nuclear armed state. There's really nothing else that threatens the United States in a military sort of way that we cannot deal with with our conventional forces. But none of our forces protect us against nuclear war. We may have the strongest nuclear nuclear arsenal in the world, but that doesn't keep another country potentially from launching nuclear weapons at us and causing unimaginable destruction.
0: You're listening to Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons with Ira Helfand of ICANN. We're not terribly far beyond the threats in 2017 that highlighted a threat of a nuclear exchange between the U.S. and North Korea. Uh, And so certainly when considering what are the sort of the, the areas of the greatest concern about nuclear proliferation, North Korea and Iran are both on that list. In your estimation, would a ratification of the TPNW give the US a stronger foothold or stronger foundation to counter North Korea's nuclear proliferation, Iran's proliferation than currently the system under the uh, Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty does?
1: I'm not sure that the US simply ratifying the treaty would, would solve these problems. It would certainly put us in a much stronger moral position uh, to confront Iran and North Korea. But I think the problem goes beyond that. It's not just for the US to ratify the treaty. The US needs to sit down with all of the other eight nuclear-armed nations and conduct the detailed negotiations for a verifiable, enforceable, time-bound agreement to dismantle the remaining weapons. Uh, the TPNW does not include those sorts of specifics. Um, and that was a deliberate decision, uh, that negotiating the timetable and negotiating the uh, verification regime and the enforcement regime would needlessly delay adoption of the treaty, and that those negotiations wouldn't be meaningful without the participation of the countries that actually had the weapons. But that's the next step that has to take place right now. And the U.S., the role that the U.S. can and should play is to initiate those negotiations. Uh, there, it is, this is not going to be an easy task. Um, the North Koreans feel strongly that nuclear weapons are the only thing that keeps their regime alive. The US is going to have to figure out with the other nuclear armed states how to change that, how to um, convince the North Koreans that other security arrangements, as distasteful as that would be for us, are possible, and that they don't need to have nuclear weapons in order to feel that their regime will survive. This is. Um, this process is, is has to be based on the, the security needs of all the nuclear armed states. But the critical piece of, of this whole puzzle is for the leaders of the armed states to understand, as Gorbachev and Reagan did in the 1980s, that whatever security concerns they have, whatever issues divide them from their potential adversaries, none of that is worth the risk of a nuclear war. And that is the bottom line Truth here. We are risking nuclear war every day that these arsenals exist. We have come perilously close to nuclear war on many occasions, within minutes, literally. And it is not because we have had sound doc, military doctrine or wise leaders or infallible technology that we are here today. We're here today because we've been unbelievably lucky. And the current nuclear policy of all the nuclear armed states is at a very profound level, of nothing more than a hope for continued good luck, that somehow or other we'll muddle through and we won't stumble into a conflict where these weapons are used, that there won't be an accident where the use of these weapons is triggered, uh, that there won't be a terrorist attack that leads to a nuclear war. There's no particular reason to think that our luck is going to hold indefinitely. uh, And experts like former Secretary of Defense William Perry, the Board of Experts at the Board of the Atomic Scientists, Are all telling us we're closer to nuclear war than we've ever been, closer than we were in the worst moments of the Cold War. And given that assessment, it is imperative that the current leadership of the United States move dramatically and energetically and creatively to try to bring the other nuclear armed states into an agreement. And we don't know this will succeed, but we also don't know that this effort will fail. Nobody would have predicted in 1981 that Ronald Reagan was gonna sit down. With the Secretary General of the Communist Party, and declare together that nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought, and sign the first of a series of of enormously important uh, arms reduction agreements. There's no reason to think that if Joe Biden sits down with Putin and with President Xi, he cannot have the same kind of breakthrough that Gorbachev and Reagan had.
0: Now, one of the criticisms against, you know, moving towards, Typically referred to as a zero option, the elimination of all nuclear weapons, is what happens if one of the parties maintains even a small nuclear stockpile, the so-called bomb in the basement scenario, and the need to have nuclear weapons as a means to try to deter whether it's another state or even a terrorist organization that might seize control of a nuclear weapon, that we need these weapons in order to defend ourselves against against such an attack. What, what what are
1: if somebody chooses to attack us, um, they're going to attack us. Right now, there are something like you know, five to 10,000 nuclear warheads, uh, probably closer to 5,000 nuclear warheads aimed at the United States. Does that make us safer than if there's a couple of bombs in a basement someplace? I don't think so. The, 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 the problem of someone cheating on the agreement is real, and we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to it, but I think it's a boogeyman. The real problem isn't the possible danger that someone's going to have a bomb in the basement. The real problem is that there are, you know, at the, in the world right now, 13,000 nuclear warheads um, that are available to be used in, in the event that things spiral out of control somehow. And there's a real danger that that's going to happen. And the data in, generated by the scientific community over the last decade shows that even a very limited use of these weapons, as few as 150, 200 of these weapons, will cause if they're used against urban targets, will cause profound climate disruption across the entire world because of the smoke put into the atmosphere by by the fires these bombs would cause. This would in turn have catastrophic effects on global food production and trigger a worldwide famine that could put billions of people at risk. This is the danger we're living with. Uh, This is what we should be worried about, not a bomb in the basement. Um, And and I think we need to, to sort of get real about this. What is the real danger that we're facing?
0: You're listening to Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Our guest is Ira Helping. He is the co-chair of the Physicians for Social Responsibilities Nuclear Weapons Abolition Committee and also serves as the co-president of PSR's Global Federation, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He's also a member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANNs, International Steering Committee. In honor of its work on this treaty, ICANN was recognized with the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. Dr. Helfand is also the co-author of PSR's reports, Nuclear Famine, Two Billion at Risk, which outlines the global health consequences of regional nuclear war. so our, a lot of the focus has been on the nuclear weapons states opposition ranging from ignoring the treaty to outright hostility what can americans concerned with this issue do to try to address and, and you know potentially change american policy which i think it's fair to say at this point is you know has been fairly hostile to the treaty to change the american uh, attitudes and convince President Biden to sign a treaty? Yeah, I mean, I think what we need to change is,
1: is the whole US view of the role of nuclear weapons in the world. Currently, um, US security policy uh, is, is based on the idea, which I think is profoundly false, that nuclear weapons make us safer and that we need to have nuclear weapons forever, essentially, to secure our, our, our safety going into the future. We need to create in this country an understanding that nuclear weapons are not guarantors of our safety. They're in fact, the greatest threat to our safety and security. And people need to understand both the likelihood that we will have a nuclear war if we don't get rid of these weapons and the full extent of the consequences if we do have such a war. Um, Here in the United States, we have launched a campaign called Back from the Brink, the call to prevent nuclear war. Uh, which is an attempt to create that understanding uh, and to build a national consensus for a fundamental change in U.S. nuclear policy away from this false doctrine of deterrence to a real understanding that our security demands the elimination of all nuclear weapons everywhere. And the campaign's central uh, uh, platform is a call on the United States government to begin the negotiations that we were talking about with the other nuclear-armed states for A verifiable enforceable time-bound agreement to dismantle the remaining weapons. This campaign has been endorsed now by over 350 organizations around the country, by more than 50 cities and towns, by six um, state legislative bodies, and we are trying to build the kind of pressure needed to get the attention of the new administration and to get them to understand that the nuclear problem can't get put on the back burner. They're dealing with a lot of other huge problems, COVID, the climate crisis, the current economic crisis. They cannot ignore nuclear weapons despite these other issues that they have to deal with. They have to view the danger of nuclear war as a crisis situation that requires urgent attention. And they also have to understand that the only real way to deal with this problem is ultimately, and when I say ultimately, I don't mean in the distant future, I mean in the near term, getting rid of these weapons. Uh, and back from the brink, calls on the administration to begin these negotiations. It also calls on the United States to adopt a number of interim steps unilaterally to lessen the danger of nuclear war while these negotiations proceed. We ask the United States to renounce the first use of nuclear weapons to say we'll never use them first. We call on the United States to take its weapons off hair trigger alert so that terrorists can't hack into our command and control systems and accidentally, uh, you know cause a nuclear war. Uh, We call the United States to end the situation where the president of the United States has the sole authority to launch nuclear war, meaning that nobody else has to sign off on that decision. And we call the United States to forego the current uh, plan to spend $1.7 trillion over the next 30 years, enhancing every aspect of our nuclear arsenal, making it more deadly and more usable. And these are, I think, simple common sense steps that will make our country safer and will help to move the process of negotiation uh, with the other
0: nuclear-armed states forward. Yeah, and on one of those points, the U.S. I believe is unique; is the only acknowledged nuclear state that only requires a single authorization. I believe all of the other uh, nuclear states do have kind of fail-safe plans where it requires, I believe, three authorizations. And that tends to be the norm. And I know this issue was raised after the election of Donald Trump, but it became. Partisan issue and seemingly directed at the person of Donald Trump, as opposed to a broader policy question about you know just having you know fail-safe mechanisms to ensure the launching of, of nuclear weapons was more you know was, yeah. uh, was I effective. mean, the,
1: the obvious instability of Donald Trump uh, and his lack of judgment and his lack of information and knowledge made this issue particularly acute in people's minds. But the problem is 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 more general than the personality of Donald Trump. No human being should ever have the authority to destroy the entire world. No group of people should have that authority either, but certainly no one individual should ever be given that kind of power. So, you know, this is not the answer to the problem, but it's a a step in the right direction. The answer is getting rid of the weapons altogether so that nobody could ever use them.
0: You're listening to Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons with Ira Helfand of ICANN. I, I know that part of the TPNW's campaign has been the way that we've viewed nuclear weapons has largely been kind of a strategic view, you know, having enough second strike capability or deterrence, you know, some some sort of political value that's attached to this. And that the TPNW's campaign, and I know ICANN's campaign very much was to, re- to was to shift that attention to the humanitarian disaster that we're risking. By, by the possession of this kind of a broad movement on anti-war, you know, anti-militarized sorts of campaigns broadly to focus less on the, on the strategic value of warfare, the strategic value of weapon systems and instead focus on what level of destruction are we t- talking about if we ever use those Is that a fair description of, of, you know, the nature of ICANN's campaign?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think it was, it was, a decision that led to a major breakthrough. Before the current effort to secure this treaty, arms control negotiations were these abstract discussions as though we were playing some kind of chess game. ICANN insisted that, and, and the nations which were leading uh, the, the, these negotiations, insisted that the focus needed to be on what would actually happen if the weapons were used, something which the planners don't seem to take into account very often. And there are all these elaborate models of the kind of war we'll face with, fight with nuclear weapons. And when you look at the outcome of all these different scenarios, it's the same. Modern civilization is destroyed and hundreds of millions, or if not billions of people are killed. Um, And if if you start the conversation with that outcome, it leads to a very different kind of conversation. Obviously, if that's what's going to happen if the weapons are used, then our primary objective has got to be making sure they're never used. And we know that the only way we can make sure they're never used is to make sure they don't exist. Because as long as they exist, there is the chance that they will be used. Uh, well, we, you know, as what we now know is, is that a nuclear war between the United States and Russia uh, would very definitely create a nuclear winter that would kill the vast majority of the human race and possibly cause our extinction as a species. But even a much more limited nuclear war that might take place between smaller nuclear armed states in terms of their arsenals, like India and Pakistan, would cause enough climate disruption to trigger a famine that would end modern civilization. And the paper that, that PSR released in 2013 predicted that a war between India and Pakistan could kill up to two billion people across the globe. That's not the extinction of our species, but it is the end of civilization as we know it. And no civilization in history has ever survived disruption of that magnitude. And you know if, if that's the likely outcome, if there's a nuclear war, then obviously preventing that nuclear war has got to be the highest priority of every political leader, no matter what other problems they're dealing with. And it is um, disturbing and frustrating that the danger of nuclear war has essentially vanished from uh, public discussion uh, 40 years ago during during the 80s. If you ask people what are the major problems facing the world today, preventing nuclear war was number one or number two on everybody's list. If you pose that question today, it doesn't appear on most people's lists. And that is a major part of the problem. We need to figure out how to frighten people again, how to get them to understand what is at stake here. The fact that when they go to bed at night, there's a real chance that they won't wake up in the morning if we don't get rid of these nuclear weapons. Um, And what we have found is that when that conversation takes place, when people are taught the humanitarian impact of nuclear war. What will happen if the weapons are used? It changes their thinking and it makes them want to get rid of these weapons.
0: So the uh, last question, now that the TPNW has entered into force, there will be meetings of the countries that have uh, ratified uh, the treaty, the meetings of states parties. Um, I know that there's been conversations about the first of those meetings taking place in early 2022. Can you give us uh, some updates as to sort of where that meeting stands and what some of the different plannings are for the, you know, for the first meetings of the state's parties?
1: It is expected that the first meeting of state's parties will take place uh, in Vienna. And the hope is that it will be in January of 2022 uh, if COVID permits. I think there's a strong desire that this be uh, an in-person meeting, not a virtual meeting. And so, It will depend on whether people are able to travel freely uh, by that time. Hopefully they will be able to and that's where the meeting will take place. And this will be a gathering of the countries which have signed and ratified the treaty. That's currently 54 have ratified at this point. We expect the number to be significantly higher before the first meeting. And it will be essentially a chance for those countries to gather and plan how they're going to continue to put pressure on the states that haven't signed the treaty yet and haven't gotten rid of their arsenals. Uh, And um, Uh, It's potentially a very important point in in this whole process uh, because it will tend to focus people's attention on the danger of nuclear war. And I should mention that if people are interested in taking action directly here in the United States, I would encourage them to visit the website for the Back from the Brink campaign, which is www.preventnuclearwar.org. One word, preventnuclearwar.org. And there are all kinds of resources on the website, uh, and information on how you can become part of this campaign and help to move the United States towards a more responsible nuclear policy and one which actually uh, protects the the security and, and, and health and lives of the American people.
0: And we will post that link directly on our show page to make it very easy for you to uh, find that if you'd like to become active and, uh, you know, like to participate in this back to the brink campaign campaign and to build support for the treaty on the prohibition uh, of nuclear weapons. We've been discussing the TPNW, its entry into force in January of this year, 2021, and future steps towards building greater support in the implementation of the treaty itself with our guest, Ira Helfand. He is the co-chair of the Physician for Social Responsibilities Nuclear Weapons Abolition uh, Committee, a member of the ICANN's International Steering Committee, and the co-author of PSR's reports, Nuclear Famine, 2 Billion at Risk. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Doug. Thank you to our guests and to you for listening. The Scholar's Circle team includes Doug Becker and Lillian Inc., contributing hosts, Ankine Agassian and Melissa Chiprin, managing producers, Sud Dongre, our webmaster, Tim Page and Mike Hurst, engineers and technical support. I'm Maria Armudian, and we'll see you
1: next week.